This is ASHA Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. On ASHA Voices, we'd like to discuss what's new, examining emerging treatments and technologies as researchers question what is possible in treating hearing loss. And as part of that, you're listening to the first of two episodes about gene therapy. Next week, we'll hear more about what the future may hold, and we'll hear a case for tempering expectations when we look down the long road of scientific progress. But first, we're revisiting two conversations about gene therapy from the archive including one with a researcher who found promising results in mice named after a certain deaf composer. A deaf mouse doesn't jump at all, no matter how loud a sound you play, but after introducing our gene therapy into the ears of Beethoven mice, we find they jump again. Plus, guest share updates about what's changed since this episode was first published. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices. We're starting the show with a conversation about a protein that's associated with transduction. Transduction is the process that allows you to turn sound into an electrical signal for processing. If you're listening to this podcast, transduction is occurring. Jeff Holt is a researcher at Boston Children's Hospital. In this conversation, first published in 2020, Jeff discusses what happens during transduction and the discovery he made while researching a family experiencing a genetic form of hearing loss. As Jeff began to look at what was happening in the inner ear, it led him to a discovery about a protein called TMC1. So we discovered the function of TMC1. TMC1, we realized, functions as an ion channel, and it converts sound information into electrical signals. It opens and closes to allow ions to flow into sensory hair cells. The ions we're talking about are calcium, potassium, sodium. Things like that carry a positive charge, and when they flow into the cell, they generate an electrical signal. Okay, so help me visualize. What would this protein look like inside the air? So it's within the sensory hair cells, at the membrane of the sensory hair cells, so specifically at the very tips of the hair bundle. So when the hair bundles wiggle back and forth, they're taking that mechanical information of sound and they're physically pulling open this ion channel protein. You can imagine something like a donut where the center of the donut, you've got a donut hole, and when it's open, the ions will flow through that donut hole into the cell. When it's closed, nothing can flow through. Exactly. And so what did you find with the family? We estimate five to 8,000 patients in the U.S. who carry mutations in TMC1. And some of the mutations are recessive, meaning you inherit one copy from each parent. And if you've got two mutations, one from each parent, that carry this recessive mutation, you're not going to have any auditory function at all. Profound deafness would result. Some of the mutations are dominantly inherited. Just one copy from one parent could carry a TMC1 mutation that leads to a progressive hearing loss with an onset in the mid-teen years progressing to about the mid-20s. When you say mutation, what does that mutation look like? Is it not present or is it shaped differently? Right. So within the amino acid sequence of the TMC1 protein, there's a change in that amino acid sequence. So the amino acids are critical to the properties of this protein. And if you change it, sometimes it has no effect, and those can be passed along. People can have normal hearing. But sometimes it has a profound effect, and the protein doesn't function at all. So it doesn't open and close and prevents ions to permeate the cell. It just remains closed? It just remains closed. Okay. 
So the protein assist in transduction, can you give listeners a little background on what happens during transduction? Sure. So at the tips of these hair cells, stereocilia, there's a little apparatus. It's sort of like a Rube Goldberg machine. There's a filament that connects one cilium to another. And when that filament, it's called a tip link, gets stretched, it applies a force, a a tension to the ion channel protein. Like a rubber band, Mike. It's kind of like a rubber band, exactly. It's got some stretchiness to it. But when you pull on that rubber band, that tension gets transmitted to the ion channel, TMC1, which opens and closes in response to this force. Okay. And so if someone strums a guitar, what happens to get that signal to your brain? Right. So the first step is that sound wave entering the ear through the middle ear spaces into the inner ear where the vibrations will oscillate the basilar membrane. Hair cells on the basilar membrane are moving up and down, wiggling their hair bundles. Tip links are being stretched and TMC1 proteins are opening and closing. When they do that, that's the key step right, as those proteins open and close, allowing ions to flow into the cell, that electrical signal is eventually transmitted to the base of the hair cell, where there's a synapse with the eighth cranial nerve. And the nerve then will transmit that information from the cochlea to the brain. And you've identified where the mutations in TMC1 would occur that would create no sound to get to reach the brain. Exactly. So you have a mutation in TMC1, you're going to block that right at the initiation point. That signal transmission pathway is blocked before it ever begins. Tell me a little bit about the research you did to make this discovery. Right. So we had some ideas that the TMC family of proteins might be involved. So we generated mice that lacked TMCs, and sure enough, those mice had hearing loss. One of the steps that we did was then to put the correct DNA sequence back into the mice and found that we could recover their function, so they began to hear again. We're thinking now that this may be a potential therapeutic someday in the future. How did you know they could hear again? What what was that test like? So the same sort of tests we use in humans, we can record an auditory brainstem response, and we can play different loudnesses and different pitches or different frequencies of sound and map out the audiogram for a mouse, just like you would for a human. Mice with TMC mutations have flat lines, they have no audiograms whatsoever, and so they're profoundly deaf. But after we introduced the correct sequence back into the inner ears of these deaf mice, we found that they could hear again. Set the scene for me. What music were you playing? Where were the mice? What did it look like? Well, one of the mutations in TMC1 is known as Beethoven, named after the classical music composer Ludwig von Beethoven. And the reason that name was selected was Beethoven, the musician, also had a progressive hearing loss. It's fun. We can use Beethoven's music. We'll play his Fifth Symphony. Um, that's one of my favorites. Or Fur Elise is another one that's popular in the lab. But sure enough, when we do that to mice that have been treated, we can get ABRs that recover. We can also use another behavioral trick, which is an acoustic startle response. So just like you might be startled if somebody snuck up behind you and played a sudden loud sound, the mice will as well, and they'll jump. And so we can measure their jump. A deaf mouse doesn't jump at all, no matter how loud a sound you play, but After introducing our gene therapy into the ears of Beethoven mice, we find they jump again. Wow. Tell me a little bit more about how you're able to restore this protein in these mice. What kind of therapy is that? 
We're using a gene therapy that takes advantage of a viral vector. It doesn't cause disease in humans at all. It's rather benign. It's a nice vector because viruses bring eons of evolution, and their job is to get into cells. They infect cells, and so we can take advantage of that. We remove the viral genes, and we put in any DNA sequence we're interested in. So in the experiments we're talking about, we put in the DNA sequence for TMC1 back into the virus, and then the virus we inject into the ear, which can do its job of infecting hair cells, carrying the TMC1 DNA into those cells, the cell then knows what to do with the DNA. It takes the DNA, converts it into the TMC1 protein, which restores function. When you began researching TMC1, did you anticipate that you might find a way to reverse the deafness that this family had experienced genetically? No, that was not our initial goal. Our, our initial idea was really just to understand how the cells were working. We wanted to understand this sensory transduction process, how they take a mechanical stimulus of sound and convert it into an electrical signal. When we discovered the TMC1 gene was doing that key job, we realized that the gene carries all these different mutations, at least 40, that lead to hearing loss. And so in the process of understanding the biology, we realized, hey, this is also an opportunity to help patients. Have you thought much about people who could use this? Absolutely. We've been contacted by a number of patients, some who carry TMC1 mutations and are following our progress quite closely. We've also begun talking with various industry partners who might be able to help move this towards clinical trials. I'm wondering if there's anything else about this research that has surprised you? Or... So the strategy that we developed to target the Beethoven mutation, it's a CRISPR-Cas strategy using genome editing. And we think that the strategy may be more broadly applicable. We've targeted just the TMC1 gene in this case, but the general strategy could be used to target at least 15 other hearing loss genes that we've, we've analyzed. And so we're thinking now, how can we adapt this to target some of these other forms of genetic hearing loss? And it may also be useful for targeting other forms of inherited human disease maybe up to 20% of dominantly inherited human disease could be addressed with these sorts of strategies. Jeff Holt is a researcher at Boston Children's Hospital. We spoke at the 2019 ASHA convention, where Jeff presented as a part of the research symposium on hearing. Since our conversation took place, Jeff has continued to research and publish on genes connected to hearing loss, such as TMC1, and more recently, STRC. He says therapies related to STRC may have the potential to help more than 100,000 people with hearing loss in the U.S. As for TMC1, he is optimistic that the gene therapies we discussed could see clinical trials in the next couple of years. And although he continues to work with mice, he told me he now has grants to use human-derived stem cells to generate human ear tissue in a dish. Testing gene therapy strategies on that ear tissue is something Jeff calls a good translational approach. We move now from hereditary forms of hearing loss to research into reversing sensory neural hearing loss. Tina Stankovich is the Bertarelli Foundation professor and chair in the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the Stanford University School of Medicine. When I spoke with Tina in November 2019, she was a surgeon and an auditory neuroscientist working at Massachusetts Eye and Ear and Harvard Medical School. And like Jeff Holt, she was presenting at the Research Symposium on Hearing at the 2019 ASHA Convention. Tina researches ways to treat sensory neural hearing loss, the most common type of hearing loss. When we spoke, I asked her what techniques and ideas were on the horizon at that time. 
There are several. One of the issues is that the inner ear cannot be biopsied today and we cannot see cells inside it to establish very precise diagnosis for a given patient. And that is because the inner ear is a very small and delicate organ. And if you take a coin, uh, a penny, and you'll see that Lincoln is on the penny. And if you look at Lincoln's upper face on a penny, the human cochlea, which is the organ of hearing, in cross-section is the size of Lincoln's upper face on a penny. So you have this very small, delicate structure that's coiling. It's embedded in the densest bone in the body, and it's located deep in the base of the skull. So for these reasons, we have been unable to routinely biopsy this organ, because even just in attempting to biopsy it, you would destroy it. And we have not been able to see cells inside it because the current modern imaging techniques that are clinically used, such as computed tomography scans known as CAT scans or MRIs, which stands for magnetic resonance imaging, do not have the resolution required to see what is really happening at a cellular level in the human inner ear. So these are the big bottlenecks diagnostically, which really leads to the bottlenecks therapeutically. And what I mean by that is that right now there are no drugs that are FDA approved to treat hearing loss, which is really astounding if this is the most common sensory deficit across the globe. We are working on enabling better diagnosis and better therapy for hearing loss that would be personalized for a given patient. Tell me a little bit about that. On the diagnostic side, we are uh, developing an imaging probe that we could place inside a living human inner ear to, for the first time, see what is happening at a cellular level in a given patient. Today, all we know about the cellular basis of human hearing loss is based on studying autopsy specimens. So that means that in any given patient, we really don't know what's happening in their inner ear at any given point in time. And that's one approach that we are taking diagnostically, better imaging. And for that, we are using optical tools, basically laser light that allows us to excite the tissue and collect the reflected light. Uh, and we are also working on a liquid biopsy of the inner ear. It's not a tissue biopsy, but we're actually taking a tiny amount of fluid from the inner ear. I've told you that this organ is really small. So the total volume of fluid in the inner ear is about three drops of salt water. We even give it a special name. It's called paralymph. And it's very similar to the fluid that bathes all of our cells. So there is very little to begin with. Uh, and what we have recently shown the feasibility of is taking a fraction, actually a 50th part of a drop of fluid, to establish diagnosis. We did this after noise trauma in an animal model, in a mouse model, and here we can detect molecular changes in as little as a half a microliter of fluid. Wow, and what, what kind of changes are these? There are changes in what we call uh, inflammatory cytokines. These are signaling molecules that allow recruitment of other cells into the inner ear. And they can also cause localized damage, but they also play an important role in normal cell-to-cell -cell 
communication. But when stressed, such as after acoustic trauma, then there is a lot more of these inflammatory cytokines produced. I'm going to interrupt briefly. In preparation for this episode, I asked Tina for an update on these two diagnostic tools, the imaging probe and liquid biopsy. Here's what she told me. Tina says that she and her team now have a prototype of the imaging probe that demonstrates feasibility. She published on the device in Scientific Reports last year. As for the liquid biopsy, Tina says others are looking into this diagnostic tool as well and have found evidence of signatures for diseases associated with hearing loss in the fluid of the inner ear. I'll provide more updates at the end of the conversation, but for now, we're heading back to the interview. What I want to know is, um, do you see anything on the horizon that might allow for a drug to treat sensory neural hearing loss? I think a lot is happening in the field. I think this is a very exciting era to be in. For the longest time, we have been unable to do much aside from devices. But now, because our knowledge of what's happening uh, at a molecular level uh, has allowed us to start thinking about what is on the horizon. I think there is a promise in gene therapy, uh, and I think the inner ear has lots of advantages when it comes to delivering gene therapy because there are many genes. Hearing loss is one of the most heterogeneous disorders, and these gene therapies can be delivered directly into the inner ear uh, via localized delivery. That's one promising area of research. When you say gene therapy, help me picture kind of what that might be. Is that something that would be injected? Yeah, it it would be injected uh, into the inner ear directly, so you don't need to inject it via bloodstream, and in that case it wouldn't go anywhere else. It would just stay within the inner ear. Uh, But of course, it's not for everyone uh, because not everything can be cured by gene therapy. And it also depends on when a patient comes to see a physician. If they come uh, at the time when the ear is missing most of its architecture, then gene therapy will not work. Cells have to be there to be helped by gene therapy. And in terms of drugs, uh, we are very interested in drug repositioning, uh, which is a fancy name for drug repurposing. And what it means is looking at the drugs that are already out there and FDA approved for other indications and uh, trying to understand whether they would be relevant for hearing restoration. And that is extremely interesting because when you look at the traditional drug development, uh, it's a process that's unfortunately not very successful because 80 to 90% of clinical trials fail. And most of them fail for safety reasons. And it's really astounding because these drugs were taken to clinical trials because they showed incredible promise in animal models. And it usually takes about 10 years for an a clinical trial to be completed, and this is a super costly enterprise that costs in excess of two and a half billion dollars. Well, that's inefficient. What we are looking at is to expedite that whole process by first of all focusing on drugs that are already known to be safe. So we avoid that first bottleneck of drugs failing because they're not safe. Secondly, that allows us to cut down uh, the time needed to complete a study from 10 years to five years. And thirdly, this is much less expensive. It's still expensive. It's estimated to cost about $300 million because you still have to pay for um, regulatory studies and phase two clinical trials. Tell me a little bit about other researchers in this field. And is this a growing field? 
oh yeah, this is definitely a growing field. Now that technology is advancing in many ways, we can start addressing these issues. The advances in science uh, are typically paralleled by advances in technology. You've mentioned the breakthroughs in science that have made some of this research possible, but I'm wondering, were there other attempts to try to solve this big question of why before that? It's a really interesting question. I started looking at this imaging um, of the inner ear some 10 years ago, and uh, it was at a symposium where we were encouraged to think out of the box and uh, say, what are the bottlenecks and what should we be working on? I approached an optical engineer from Switzerland, Dimitri Psaltis. We started talking and then he asked Uh, well, who else is working on this? Uh, And I said, nobody really that I know of uh, in terms of a dedicated effort to see cellular structures in the inner ear. And then he said, well, it means one of two things. Uh, First, it's either an unimportant problem, or two, it must be really difficult. (laughs) So I said, I can definitely assure you it's the latter. It is a super important problem. And we started collaborating, and over the years, uh, we have developed new tools uh, to look inside the inner ear. So basically, there wasn't that much happening uh, 10 years ago, uh, but now uh, that there is a proof of visibility Lots of people are becoming very interested in this, which is great because that's needed for progress to happen in the field. There has to be a critical mass of investigators working on the same problem. And we never know where major breakthroughs will come from. All what we can do is keep working really hard on uh, what we hope will make a difference. Since I spoke with Tina in 2019, she's continued her pursuit of developing better diagnostics and therapeutics for sensory neural hearing loss. And she's not alone. As she points out, many companies are pursuing gene therapies for this purpose as well. For gene therapy, alternate forms of packaging and delivery are being explored, and Tina says she and others have seen that gene therapy can be successfully delivered in large animal models, including non-human primates. As for the potential of drug repurposing, Tina shares that she and her team have found potential in a couple of drugs, one intended to treat hypertension that could help with preventing hearing loss due to an intracranial tumor, another drug intended for treating osteoporosis may have potential to treat a part of sensory neural hearing loss, but Tina points out it's still unclear if those results will translate to humans. Finally, one more update. It was less than two months after we published this conversation that the U.S. began to see reports of COVID-19 in Seattle. Where did the pandemic show up in Tina's research? She co-led a study showing that the virus causing COVID-19 can infect cells in the inner ear, and Tina says that this may underlie COVID-19-associated audiovestibular dysfunction. Join us next week. We'll continue the conversation around gene therapy. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.